We have a major highlight for you today. I was able to convince Jonathan Kahn to take a break out of his busy day. Jonathan, I avoid introducing the guests instead of I save some time in the intro and ask my guests to introduce themselves. So the stage is yours. Great. So uh, I'm Jonathan Kahn. I am a partner in the medical device and technology group at Hogan Levels. I have been with the predecessor firm of Hogan and Hartson uh, and Hogan Levels. This is my 47th year at the firm. Uh, and that's my intro. Wow, that's quite a while. <laughs> um, so can you get a little bit deeper in the cases or kind of the, the field of your profession? Sure, sure. So maybe just to sort of give you the history of how I got to where I am, I, I went to um, GW undergraduate and GW law school, and then I clerked on the U.S. District Court uh, in the District of Columbia during the Watergate cases, which was fascinating. Uh, I joined Hogan and Hartson in 1974 um, in the litigation department, as you might expect for a uh, U.S. District Court law clerk. But the first cases I had, one of the major cases I had early on was a pro bono case <clears throat> representing the Mental Health Law Project, which was headed up by Patricia Wald, who later became a U.S. Court of Appeals judge in D.C., to sue uh, <clears throat> the U.S. Food and Drug Administration on the use of phenothiazines, melaryl, thorazine, that were being used in um, institutions for kids who were cognitively impaired and they were using them as straitjackets just to keep the kids drugged. And the Mental Health Law Project, of course, felt that was really inappropriate and didn't meet the drug labeling uh, for the drugs. So we sued in court, uh, the drug companies intervened, uh, and that was my first successful FDA case. Uh, we won that case. The drug companies agreed to contraindicate their drugs for cognitively impaired uh, juveniles. Um, uh, that case was with uh, the only FDA attorney at Hogan and Hartson at that time. His name was Jerry Gilbert. Uh, and Jerry later became my mentor. Uh, and at that time in 19, this was probably 1975. Uh, we were the only two FDA attorneys in this firm. He recruited me. I started doing FDA work. We didn't, we had two FDA clients. One was a condom company, the world's largest condom company, uh, and Warner Lambert, which is a large drug company. But that was it. That was Hogan and Hartson's life science practice, was those two companies at the time. Hogan and Hartson was known more, uh, not for those kinds of cases, but more in litigation, local representations, et cetera. Um, so Jerry and I um, decided, well, we'll try to build the FDA practice. And slowly but surely, uh, we brought in a few other uh, FDA-related clients in drugs, devices, foods, cosmetics. Uh, we did not specialize at that time. Um, after a few years of that, um, I guess I was becoming a life sciences attorney, but half of my practice was international trade because we didn't have enough FDA work to really keep either of us totally busy. Um, and that's when my life changed. Jerry, um, along with Sandy Berger, 
um, who later became National Security Counsel for Bill Clinton, uh, both went and became chief lobbyists for Toyota in the international trade area. And that left me as the only FDA attorney as a senior associate, which was difficult. <laughs> and um, But fortunately, as an associate, I had brought in a number of clients of my own. Uh, and so I was not yet a partner, but I had quite a, um, a large amount of billing as an associate which was a bit unusual. I did it by uh, writing articles, maybe a couple of months. Every month I'd write two articles uh, or I would give speeches everywhere. Uh, the Food and Drug Law Institute, Gary Yingling, who was the president, was extremely nice to me and allowed me to speak on things I knew nothing about. Uh, so I had to learn, you know, I think the first article I wrote was on food drug, I guess they were food additives, and color additives, uh, which I knew nothing about, but I gave a speech on it. And then over time, I wrote a large article on lasers. Uh, and then I wrote an article on devices, which was 510Ks versus PMAs, different routes to the same market. Uh, and by coincidence, uh, there was a large case pending before the Supreme Court called Medtronic versus Lore. Uh, about that very issue in product liability cases. And the Supreme Court cited my law review article three times. So that was one of the heights of my legal career. Got, wow. my, got my name out there in the Medtronic versus Lore case. And that started helping me build my practice. Um, so the executive committee at that time said, look, we think life sciences is going to be big. We, so they got together the health practice and the FDA practice at the time, which was five of us. That was it. I was the 105th attorney in the firm. We weren't very large, but the only, the whole life sciences practice at that time was five of us, uh, me and FDA and four others in the health area. And they said, here's a blank check. Go build a practice. And that turned out to be great for me and very prescient, prescient for Hogan Levels and Hogan and Carson. Uh, at that time, I started then with their blank check. I uh, just then became a partner uh, in 1981. And I started recruiting others to the group. Uh, the first guy I recruited was Ed Corwick, who had a PhD in biochemistry and was also a lawyer. He was at Keller and Heckman. And he was going to be the basis of our drug practice. I then recruited Rich Silverman and Gary Kushner. Gary is still with the firm, uh, who uh, were Collier and Shannon and had a large food practice. Uh, so that was going to be the basis for approved food practice. I recruited Howard Holstein and Rob Muncy, who were uh, very well uh, recognized device lawyers. And that was going to be the basis of our device practice. Uh, and then I needed associates. So I recruited uh, Jeff Gibbs out of um, the FDA uh, and Jeff Shapiro, uh, who had been um, working at another small um, uh, food and drug firm headed up by Nancy Buck. 
Uh, and those were sort of the first basic people within our our device group at the time. Uh, and so then uh, that was sort of the focus of how to build the device group. Um, but go may ahead. I interrupt really quick? Sure. So what was your argumentation convincing all this impressive people to come over? That there, there was, still was no practice. We said, no. we have a black track. We can do whatever we want. Nope. There is a chance for you. So <laughs> Jeff who's now, and Jeff Shapiro are both very prominent partners at Hyman Phelps. I hated to lose them both, but um, they asked me that exact same question. Why <laughs> should we join you when we, you hardly have been much of a practice. We know you're building it. And I said, trust me, we will have the largest and most significant FDA practice in the country. Just work with me to build it. And they did. And uh, after that, I think what I sold them of was Hogan and Hartson's commitment. Uh, the, re the executive committee really did give us a blank check. As you can see, you know, we were willing to pay money and recruit people. And I couldn't do it internally. I needed help. So I needed people with established practices. It took me, uh, Gary Kushner, who's a partner at Hogan Levels now. I, uh, took me a year to recruit him and Rick Silverman. Uh, um, Gary Kushner and I once spent an hour jogging in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, as I recruited him. Um, it took me a year to recruit, uh, Howard Holstein and Rod Muncy because we had so many conflicts. They represented companies who hated some of my clients. And so we had to convince uh, the clients and, and them to come over. It turned out to be, I mean, each of them was at the firm for over 20 years. It turned out to be a great relationship with all of them. Um, and Bob Brady uh, came over from Patton Boggs where they just were a totally dysfunctional practice. And Bob Brady was one of the best recognized drug lawyers in the country. And he came over. Um, so it was not easy. I mean, it took me a few years to <laughs> convince everybody and build the practice. But the key was getting people who were well-recognized, well-established to believe in the practice. Um, and it worked out, you know, extremely well. So I was the head of the food drug and device practice, which because we weren't big enough yet to do it and all. So I was able to build in each area as the director of that practice. It became so successful after a while that it was very difficult as this practice was building to try to both practice and administer three groups that were becoming extremely successful and large. So we went to the executive committee and said, we think we should have a food group, we should have a drug group, and we should have a device group. And I said, I'm really primarily in devices now, although I had done all of those areas for years, uh, I want to concentrate in devices. And Bob Brady took over the drug group as the director of the drug group. Uh, with Ed Corwick, who was help, still there helping out at the time, uh, and Rick Silverman and Gary Kushner took over the uh, the food group, 
Martin Hahn, who was a young associate who I work with in the device area, uh, Rick and, um, and Gary persuaded him to become a food lawyer. Uh, and he is now the director of our food practice. So it really was partly serendipity and it was partly lucky planning uh, to build that kind of practice. Well, that must be quite a challenge to kind of fight two fronts. One is like building a team, which is as kind of ambitious as you to target, okay, we want to grow, we want to be the best. Yep. And on the other side, build out the practice. Yep. That must have been pretty intense. So I was in every weekend. Um, I, I, and my kids probably still joke with me about this, but I would come in and write articles and write speeches uh, and work on building the practice. Um, I would come in at 6.30 in the morning on Saturdays and work for just a three hours till my kids wow. got up. And then um, we would then uh, work with the other partners in the group as to what our strategic plan was. So we gave, um, we were also fortunate, I should mention, that, that Paul Rogers, uh, the father of the medical device amendment of 1976, the basis of our practice in the device area, joined Hogan and Hartson. He was the congressman from Florida and the author of the medical device amendments of 1976. So Paul didn't get down in the dirt and you know practice in the device area, but we played him. Uh, he was just the nicest human being in the world. So we decided in the early 1990s to put on a conference just of our own, of a Hogan and Hartson medical device conference. And Paul helped us build it, Paul spoke, and he got this senator uh, who was then head of, of the uh, health committee in the Senate, a guy by the name of Al Gore, to come in and speak wow. at the conference. And we sent out invitations to maybe 150, 200 people. Uh, and we ended up with 120 people at this conference. Uh, it made a big hit. We had, we, highlighted and showcased our health practice, our FDA practice in the device area. And so those kinds of business development activities um, uh, were very prominent in building the practice. So we did a number of those uh, conferences that were just our own, but we also spoke at Food and Drug Law Institute conferences, um, RAPS conference, Regulatory Affairs Professional conferences, so that was the way we built we built the device practice, and our food and drug lawyers were doing exactly the same thing in their areas. I'm going to come back um, on this kind of balance between actually work and doing business development and all this stuff. Yep. Um, I'm going to come back to this in a couple of minutes. But during that time, how long did it take you to kind of develop your own kind of philosophy when it comes down to advising clients, building relationships, how yeah. am I approaching business, how I'm actually building out the client relationship? Yeah. Well, it's actually a very simple basic principle. And that was, what does the client need? And build it to serve that need. And so in the device area, the way it's still divided up in our practice today, 
um, is the total product life cycle of a medical device. You start out in development, you go mm -hmm. through pre-market approval or clearance, and then you have post-market issues, which are enforcement issues, reporting adverse events, import-export, criminal cases, injunctive cases, uh, seizure actions, import alerts. All of those things are needed. Uh, you need people who are experts in good manufacturing practices and quality systems. You need people who are clinical experts. So in the clinical area, just for example, we recruited Jerry Prudhomme, who at the time was a product liability lawyer in a, uh, a firm in Baltimore, but he had an undergraduate degree in physics and a master's degree in biostatistics and had worked at a contract research organization. Jerry is still a senior counsel. He then stayed with the firm for 25 years, but he's a biostatistician, helps handle a lot of our clinical part of our practice. We recruited Ted Wilson, who now is um, a partner in our group, who is an expert in quality systems, as was Pat Slater, who I recruited as a law clerk. She later became counsel uh, as she was a director of quality and regulatory for one of my clients. And so each of these people had an expertise, an expertise to build out the client's needs in clinical, in quality, and in pre-market approval. And so that was the basic philosophy. And the other part of that philosophy, which now is copied by a lot of law firms and consulting firms, is we hired people out of FDA mm -hmm. who were not lawyers, who were regulatory people, PhDs, yeah. MDs, biomedical engineers, biostatisticians. And we still have a whole group of those people uh, at our, in our group who bill out less uh, rates than attorneys, but are extremely important in allowing us to talk at the same level technically and medically and scientifically with our clients. So that was the philosophy. And um, now a lot of other law firms have followed that, not, not successfully in many cases, but King and Spalding and others have followed it. Covington refused to follow that paradigm. <laughs> they still don't do that kind of work. Neither yeah. does Arnold and Porter, and both those practices are quite different than ours. They do not serve the entire total product life cycle of a device company. That's why we are distinguished and are on the you know short list for just about every client in the device area. And being part of all the ups and downs, and kind of being by their side during, metaphorically speaking, in the rough sea. Mm -hmm. of getting a product out of the onto the market yep. i think is a strong kind of yeah um, and so i still relationship uh, building yeah. yeah the way our practice is divided up now it, it is a bit siloed in pre-market and post-market but i still do all of pre-market and post-market a lot of my practice if you look at my practice over the years i worked on a lot of fda criminal cases and i brought in our white uh, collar people steve immelt uh, worked on a lot of those cases with me. Peter Spivak worked on those cases with me. Um, uh, so there are a number of those uh, uh, cases where a lot of our high billings were in the um, post-market compliance area. But really the key to my practice personally, if you look at my billings and collections over the years, is only about 50% of my collections over the years have actually been in the FDA area. 
Mm -hmm. uh, what we've done, at least in my practice, and it's true of our practice generally, uh, is we sell our device clients, small and large, on the other practices in the firm, uh, litigation, healthcare, lobbying, antitrust, corporate. Uh, and so that crossover and cross-pollination has been one of the also underlying philosophies of building the practice. You already um, kind of talked a bit about the matter that more likely set your path. <laughs> but I'm always keen to learn, and I mean, you have an incredibly career, so maybe it's hard to pin it down, but I'm always asking Alois, what was the biggest case or what was the case that had the biggest impact on your career yeah which where you still kind of have fond thoughts about or you kind of look back and say okay i maybe would have done something different and that would have been yeah. a different outcome then is there anything you can name well and you three, actually are allowed to talk about yeah there are three legs of that that uh what, what allowed me to start building my practice actually was lasers medical lasers, which nobody knew anything about. And so I was lucky to get a small company called Endolase, which worked with a large German laser company called Messerschmitt. Uh, and so we ended up getting many, many clearances in the medical laser area. So that was the foundation of the cases that I would cite as to why I love what I do and why I'm still doing it after 47 years. There are two. One is a company called Novacure. Novacure uh, it, uh, came to us in the early 2000s. Uh, a guy by the name of Joram Palti uh, was a professor at the Technion. He will be a Nobel laureate before he dies, I'm sure. Uh, and he has invented, his, the list of inventions is beyond compare. But one of his inventions was a device that treats brain cancer. There had never been a medical device that treated glioblastomas. And so his theory was that you could, um, using electrodes, uh, transmit electrical energy. He called them TT fields. Uh, the TT fields sends in electrical signals uh, into the brain. And when a brain cancer cell divides, it's like a barbell. And the electrical signals went into the bar went out to the end of the barbell and exploded the cancer cell before they, while they were dividing without injuring any non-dividing cells. And it was a theory. And so we decided, it took us a year to figure out what it could be used for, because it could be used for many cancers. Uh, and we decided glioblastomas because those people only live up to about 18 months with a brain cancer like that. So we took it to, uh, we did studies, we designed the studies, we took it to FDA and damned if we didn't get approval for uh, recurrent glioblastomas, then we got a clearance for uh, recurring, um, for uh, newly diagnosed glioblastomas. Uh, and now 20% of all brain cancer patients in the United States use that device. Uh, and it is, the company went from a theory I think they have a market cap now of about 18 billion to 20 billion dollars. And wow. our former partner, Jen Henderson, uh, um, uh, managed to get lured away by my best, one of my best friends in the world, who's the CEO, 
Uh, he lured her away from me. I'm still mad at him. Uh, and she's now uh, their their senior vice president for uh, regulatory and other other legal issues. So uh, now they've also been approved for mesothelioma. They are uh, just announced extremely good results in non-small uh, non-small cell lung carcinomas. Uh, they are working on prostate cancer. It's a platform that is unbelievable and. One of the reasons I love what I do is I look around and that device has saved an incredible number of lives, incredible number of lives. Um, the other second one, which is my favorite, is a company called Second Sight, which has had a very difficult financial uh, journey, but that device allows blind people to see. And it uh, basically treats retinitis pigmentosus, its first device, that it was cleared by FDA for, but it's just an amazing technology. And people who are blinded by retinitis pigmentosa are able to see with that device. It's a complicated technology, but it actually works. And now they pivoted because that a very small population to people who are blind for all reasons. And it basically is going to be like that device on Star Trek where you put it over your eyes and you're able, blind people are able to see. That's where they're heading with that device. So if you ask me my favorite product, those are my favorite products. You, being part of kind of the life sciences history, um, I hear that a lot from people. And yep. this is, this is about, but this is one of the most impressive stories <laughs> I've heard so far. Yeah, we really didn't have, yeah, we didn't have a life sciences practice. And it was, we were fortunate when we merged with Lovells that Lovells had, you know, people uh, like Jorg and others um, and Andreas who, you know, did have uh, not the same kind of regulatory practice, but interest in the area as well. So it's worked out, you know, very well between the European practice and the U.S. practices of actually fit in fairly well to build to build these practices. And now I have a, I have a challenge for you. And this fits into kind of going into the future narrative. So yeah. um, you said the computerization of the pharmaceutical industry has been progressing at a rapid pace and no end to these advances is, is in sight. Right. Do you remember where you said that? Or where you published that sentence? <laughs> um, <laughs> that that sounds like an article I wrote in the 1980s. Is that where that's from? Yeah, actually, this is from um, the Drug Informal Journal uh -huh. from October 1st, 1987. Yeah, yeah, I wrote a, several articles on that topic. I said, look, you know, digital health is coming because uh, software for both treatment and diagnosis is you know going to be coming in different forms and i said look out fda is going to have to catch up and yeah. it's 2021 and fda is still catching up yeah so, and that was my that was my follow-up question where where I was um have you ever thought that we are coming this far for example having ai systems yeah supporting drug development mm -hmm. um while you're still so active in this field have you ever could you imagine that this is going to be the status we're in right now? Well, 
you know, in the one of the articles I wrote in 1987-86 about this, I wrote several articles, was um, there, there's going to be a revolution uh, first in diagnostics so that you use software and digital health to uh, both predict what drugs are going to be used to treat a disease and which ones are going to work. And we're still working on that. That's called clinical decision support software. Uh, and we never also, IBM and Watson uh, have the same kind of software that they've developed into a huge uh, industry as well. Did I think it would become quite as successful as it is? It's now a multi-billion dollar industry. Did I believe that uh, Google and Apple and others would have, you know, wearable devices that can, you know, measure all of your biometric function from, you know, uh, atrial fibrillation uh, to glucose uh, deficiencies? Yes, I thought it would happen, never to the degree that I thought it would. Whoever envisioned there would be an Apple and that you could do all of this on a smartphone, um, that, that, that wasn't on my radar, but uh, Steve Jobs wasn't, Jobs wasn't on my radar either. So yes, this uh, has become quite amazing and it is a huge part of our practice. John Smith, um, who's an MD, um, and a lawyer in our group, uh, one of his specialties is AI and machine learning. And he has a lot of clients, we all do, following up on this area. So there's more to come. We're still at the very beginning of all of it. And um, kind of keeping to continue to look in the glass bowl, obviously we had 18 or the last, more likely the last two years that were unprecedented. and with so impressive developments regarding science and in the pharma and medical device industry. Right. But um, I need your, I need your, your glass ball. So what do you think are going to be the greatest or the upcoming challenges and opportunities for the industries in the coming year? Yeah. And follow up question, as I do always follow up question, do you set things for yourself? regarding kind of what do I want to accomplish in the next yeah. year or two? So um, I'll answer the first, the last one, and then I'll, I'll answer the question about, you know, what we're facing. Um, for myself, I am still practicing more than full-time. My wife's the CEO of a public relations company. Until she retires, I probably won't retire. Uh, so I'm still practicing pretty much full time. Uh, and one of my emphasis has been to try to mentor uh, people in our group, both associates and still helping my partners develop their practices. Uh, and I work a lot with my alma mater, GW Law. I endowed a research professorship uh, at GW for FDA and healthcare law. Please don't uh, spoil that. I'm going to come to that later. Okay, and and founded <laughs> up by one of the most amazing professors there, uh, Sonia Suter, uh, and they then formed uh, as part of that health initiative, FDA initiative. They started a group called the Con Fellows, uh, who um, uh, concentrate in health and FDA law 
at GW Law. We just hired two of those con fellows, uh, one in the pharma group, one in the device group. And so my, you know, one of my personal goals is to try to keep mentoring and seeing a stream of people come into the practice. I want the practice at Hogan levels to succeed. How does that happen? It happens with great people. Um, I will just tell you one quick story about great people. Janice Hogan was a second year associate at Hogan and Hartson. She came and said she had to leave the firm. And this woman is just unbelievable. She had an undergraduate degree in engineering from MIT, uh, top of her class at Georgetown Law. I said, that can't happen. So I went to Warren Gorell, who was the new CEO of the firm. I said, we have to open an office in Philadelphia for Janice. He said, for a second year associate? I said, yes. She is unbelievable. And he did it. And Janice is now uh, has been co-director of the group for a while. She has the probably the largest device practice of the group now, larger than mine, probably. Uh, and that's how you build a practice. We had Randy Prabula came in, as you know, Randy uh, was a scientist uh, in one of my at one of my clients. Uh, I worked with him for I recruited him in that regulatory science role. And I said, after working with him for 10 years, this guy's a freaking genius. We need him as a partner. I persuaded the firm to pay his way through law school. Mm -hmm. He did. Uh, and he came in uh, after law school uh, as a newly minted member of the bar. We made him counsel. He never was an associate. And he then became partner very quickly thereafter. And we did the same thing with Princeton Zelensky Duggan, who also was one of our scientists who came in. Uh, and then we sent her to law school as well. That's how you have a successful practice. And that's what I would like our practice to continue to be based on just incredible people. This so I'm so happy that I, I convinced you to talk to me because <laughs> I learned I learned so much about this all the colleagues. And I really appreciate you shouting out so many people. I really I I, I think this is great. I learned so much. This is this is awesome. And I I really feel how you this is this is your baby, and you you feel it. You really feel it. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate the passion. The other day, I I wanted to leave a legacy. I hope I have. Uh, I I think that um, if I've done anything for Hogan and Hearts and Hogan Levels, is I think I will have left something. I also have two sons who are lawyers, who I also counsel the same way. Find something you love to do. And I think both my sons have decided how to do that. So, and um, I need the answer for my first question. After the year, the years of COVID, and we're yeah. trying to recover from that. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think in the FDA area, it's one of the few areas that you and I can absolutely agree will never be deregulated. So uh, we have a practice in the future. And there's a second thing you know, and that is it's a very difficult FDA practice. And our clients always need in food, drugs, and devices, need people with incredible expertise, technically and legally, to help them navigate through the FDA process. 
So I think for our practice and the future, uh, I think we're in a very good place. Uh, as you probably know, every, everybody envies our practice. We get recruited, even me at my geezer age, get recruited every day to go to other <laughs> firms. Uh, and so um, the key is to try to keep people happy, keep them practicing at Hogan Levels. And, and the way to do that, we have the most interesting clients. We see every new technology in the device area, same in pharma, uh, you know, with the work we've done with Pfizer and in the food area with food biotechnology and other areas, just the most fascinating technologies. And that's the way we recruit new people to our group as well. If you want to see the future, come to our practice. That's actually a great answer. Right. <laughs> it combines the glass ball and the promotion of our expertise. Yep. I really like that. Um, last year, um, you published um, the medical device development regulation law with Mike Heil in 2020. Yep. Um, I was trying to figure out which edition that is. So that's the fifth. So the wow. first one I wrote all by myself. Yeah, I saw that. That, yeah, one, that I one I wrote all by myself. And then the next three, I, I recruited everybody in the practice to work with me. And I put their name at the front of each, each chapter. And it's now a 620-page book. I use it when I teach. I teach law at GW Law as well. I teach yeah. medical yeah. technology law. And I use it as a case book, as do some other law, um, law schools. Uh, and my clients use it as a reference. But this last year, 2020, which is the fifth edition, I said, it cannot only be my name on the book. I, I, I needed a co-editor at 620 pages to help me edit the damn thing. And so Mike Heil uh, helped me. He's now the you know, co-editor, author of the book. And that was the other legacy I hope to leave. I want Mike, when I retire, to, to keep that up because I'll Have you told <laughs> it is an incredible resource. My clients cite it to me all the time that they have it beside them on their desk all the time when they need a reference. Um, and so that really, I think, is another one of the legacies that I wanted to, um, to leave. So I think the first one was 1995 was the first edition. I have a copy of, it was a paperback. <laughs> that was the first one. Uh, the rest are you know, hardbacks and they each grew yeah. you know, in size to the present 620 some odd pages. Yeah, because I was, I was mind blown when I saw kind of the amount of content. I was like, how how is he able to fight aside of all the things he's doing, how is he able to pull this so off? The first one I took all the articles I wrote and put them into a book. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so it was a lot of it was stuff I had already written. But uh that that one I I didn't add there was nobody who could really help me at that point. We were all so busy. But afterwards, I, I just had really great associates and partners who agreed to help me out. So that the, each edition after that was, even though the book has my name on it, it's really just a group book. Uh, and so every, every chapter has the names of the people in the group who worked, worked on that chapter. Uh, and it's a, great, it's a great resource, I think. So. Um, yeah, I, and I think this is part of kind of your path of success but i wanted to kind of ask the question is what constitutes success 
in your mind. And mm-hmm. um, is it maybe after years of years of years being a leading lawyer in chambers, now being ranked as a what is senior states person? Yeah. <laughs> is this maybe something? But I was just I've seen it in my research, and I thought I'm going to definitely drop that as well. Yeah. <laughs> but so if I had to measure success, I would not measure it in just the practice itself. When I look around, I look at success as the people who have worked in our group who have become successful, whether they're still at Hogan Levels uh, or whether they're at other law firms or in our clients or other companies. Those people are the future of the food and drug bar. And I have mentored a lot of them. I've tried to do it well, sometimes better uh, than at other times. And those people, people like, you know, Jody Scott and Ted Wilson and Mike Heil and Janice Hogan and just uh, John Smith and others in our group, the fact that those people are successful practitioners and they are doing good for our clients They are well-recognized experts at FDA. And most importantly, every one of them is a nice person. That's how we recruited for our group. We have no barracudas in our group. We have really nice, successful people who value uh, the collegiality of our group. So they're smart, they're collegial, they're nice. If there's anything I leave behind, that's the legacy. Uh, I'm poker again. Uh, a lot of ex-Hogan and Hartson people are in my poker group. Uh, but you're not you're not targeting um, WSOP at some point. No, no, not quite. <laughs> uh, and then I also play tennis uh, mm-hmm. and racquetball and squash. Now it's mostly tennis. And I've been in the same poker uh, tennis group for 40 years. So I play a lot of tennis. But my wife who's just the most lovely person in the world. I'm very lucky. Uh, she um, loves to travel. She loves a lot of the same things that I do, including country music. Uh, and so, uh, so, so she's been just, you know, a rock. I have two grandchildren uh, who uh, are just adorable. I hope to have more. Um, my daughter is uh, executive editor at HarperCollins in New York. She's married to a famous poet, so I get a lot of joy in my personal life from them. Uh, and uh, my two sons, uh, Adam, is uh, with the New York State Commission on Judicial Conduct, so he prosecutes bad judges. And my son, David, is uh, a litigator of Kirkland Ellis in New York uh, at a big law firm doing litigation. We'll see you what happens. Say that. We'll see what happens with that. Uh, yeah. And then my other son, who's the smartest and happiest of the bunch, is a chef. Um, and he's a chef for two personal chef for two billionaires on their yachts and private islands. So he's got a very good job. So I can I can relate to that. I took two years off actually and learned in the two star restaurant to become a chef. Yeah. Well, he went to culinary <laughs> art school after college, yeah. and I love it when he comes home because he really is a five star five star chef. So that's quite a skill. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that is. <laughs> All right, um, Jonathan. Thank you very much. Right, thank you. That went that went fast. 
Yeah. We are at 50 minutes. I couldn't, there was so much. Great, thank I'm, you. I'm really happy that I was able to lure you in. Yeah, it was a pleasure. <laughs> thank you very much. So I close it out. Um, that's it for today. If you have further questions for Jonathan, I'm going to link his bio in the description. If you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, you're not missing out on any future episodes, please do so. And please tell your friends, colleagues, family about this podcast <laughs> um, so we are able to grow. Um, thank you for listening in and we hopefully hear you in about two weeks. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you.